I think my, actually, I know my purpose is to help the next generation to achieve, to achieve the dreams that our, that our ancestors had for us. Welcome to the Purposeful Story Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs, drivers, and social impactors who use purpose as the driver to achieve greatness. My name is Kobe Mponsa, and I'm here to provide you with priceless value that will last a lifetime. So let's get right into it. So today we have Derek Raphael, CEO and co-founder of Icon Talent Partners, which is a nonprofit talent development organization dedicated to educating, training, and mentoring young minority professionals to work in high-impact sectors. Raphael also serves as a coach and mentor for multiple organizations, including Sheridan College and University of Toronto Mississauga. And I would like to say the first time I met Derek, I got chills because from all the things he's accomplished and continues to accomplish, it, it just amazes me. And he's just He's so well-rounded in terms of entrepreneurship and education. It's, it's mind-boggling. So, Derek, thanks for coming on the show today. Nah, man, it's my pleasure. Happy to do so. All right. So, Derek, first off, how are you feeling today, man? Like, how are you feeling? Man, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I think I shared with you that things have been full throttle in regards to Icon Talent Partners. And this morning started off well with a notification that we will have a private equity firm represented at our symposium on Saturday, September 26th, um, which is super exciting because, you know, private equity is a hard sector to get into. So to get one of the vice presidents to, you know, share her time with the young people in attendance is a good look. Absolutely. So Derek, I want to start off with your, with your beginnings. Where were you born and raised? So um, that's the short story and there's a long story. Short story, I was born at West Point, New York. Um, both my parents were in the U.S. Army. Um, but that shortly thereafter, I started moving around, which is kind of like the life of a military brat. So we moved to Columbia, South Carolina, Wiesbaden, Germany, Savannah, Georgia, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, I'll say that I was primarily raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina, because I went to middle school and high school there. Got you. And you applied to go to Princeton back in the early 2000s, uh, correct? Yes, sir. And the interesting thing that, about that, you know, when I just, just studying you, none of your parents went to college, if, college, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm -hmm. But what motivated you to make that decision, you know, given that, you know, you didn't have anyone in your direct circle in terms of your parents who have, have done that before? What kind of motivated you to do that? Well, I think there's a lot of factors. And I think, you know, just as a quick point of clarification, you know, when I was growing up, none, neither of my parents had their quote unquote college degrees. So when I actually graduated from high school, that's also the same year my father graduated from university and my mm -hmm. older brother. So we had three graduations at the exact same time. Wow. And how did that feel? Like, how was that experience for you? Um, it was really gratifying. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a pretty common guy. Like, um, you know, the funny part is my number one choice actually wasn't Princeton back in the day. My number one choice was, was Morehouse. Um, I wanted to be a Morehouse man. That was kind of like my dream. You know, I actually was very fortunate and privileged to be a part of college prep programs at Fable State University, which is a local HBCU. Um, so going through those programs, I had a strong love for, you know, historically black colleges and universities. Um, but unfortunately, when I did get it, I was fortunate to gain acceptance to the Morehouse. But at the time, they didn't give me any scholarship money. And I was like, well, I'm not getting any money. I can't go there. So I actually um, told some of the individuals I was connected to that, hey, I just got into Princeton. I got into Duke. I got into UPenn Wharton, their undergrad business program. But they all gave me money. But Morehouse was like, no, dude, no money for you. But after I told my contact, um, she informed Morehouse. And then like a couple weeks later, they're like full ride. But I was like, yo, man, you didn't want me what I wanted you. Like, what's going on? <laughs> so unfortunately, you know, I ended up, you know, you know, taking a detour and ended up going to um, Princeton University, which was, I think, the best choice for me. 
Interesting. And the whole experience around Princeton, you know, Princeton is seen as a prestigious school, but how was that experience for you while you were in school? Like, can you, can you think back? Well, you know, I would say Princeton in many ways to me is two, two ex experiences. I think for those that are privileged, which I think Princeton is not necessarily about your, your ethnicity, it's about your socioeconomic status. So like if you come in there and you come from a fairly professional background in terms of your parents, or you come with, you know, you have money, your Princeton experience is very different than those that do not. You mm -hmm. know, we have a lot of, I'll say nuances to Princeton, be it our eating clubs, which are pretty much um, private dining areas for your junior and senior year that cost at least at the time around $6,000 extra a year. So if you don't have money, and this isn't a part of your scholarship program or your financial aid, that will be a, a tough pill to swallow for your family. So if you have money, you're like, whatever, sounds great, 6,000, not a big deal. For me, however, that was a big deal um, to have that extra expense on top of Prince University. So I'll say that it's a tale of two different, two different worlds. Got you. And you then transitioned um, to Duke University for, for law, correct? Yes, sir. And what, did, what made you decide to go into law? Because I, from a lot of people that I know that go into law, they, for the most part, I find a lot of them find it very hard and very difficult. And the advice that they give to a lot of people is don't go into law unless you really want to do it. So yeah, you know what? Yeah, sorry. Um, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I would say that I think that is true. Um, when I went through my law school process at the time, my, my dream was to be governor of North Carolina. So I had wow. a very political focus in terms of this fit my master plan. Um, obviously, things have changed because I live in Canada. Um, <laughs> but um, at the time, I was very focused on the political angle. I think, you know, I was always in tune to working with young people. Um, that's actually something shockingly that continues today in terms of icon talent partners. Um, but I've been working with youth in some shape, form or fashion for over 20 years now, over 20 years. And what was your first experience in working with youth? My first experience working with youth was when I was a youth. So hmm. I actually started a program as a sophomore. So I think I was about 15. And I created a program for other students called Scholarship Seminar. Um, and I think when looking back, it would be something I would create. So at the time, you know, I created this initiative, actually correction. I was a junior. I was a junior in high school because I was student body vice president. Um, I partnered with the senior guidance counselor, Miss Mildred McDade, an excellent woman who's a very good friend. And I said, hey, we should have an event to expose other students to the college application process, deadlines, resources for them. And I essentially created a, a pamphlet for other students. We had this big event. Um, we invited students from across the school. And we had about, I think, 100 plus young people came out. The, univers the you know, my high school, Pine Forest High School in Fayetteville provided me funding for pizza and soda and kids. I don't know if they all came for the food or they came for the instruction or both, um, but it was a really well attended event. And now my first personal official foray and sort of doing stuff like that for other young people. And what drives you to, to work with young people all the time? Like you're always working with young professionals. Like what, what drives you to do that? Um, to be honest with you, I feel that as I've grown up, especially, you know, at this point where I have a little guy, Harper, my son, is I wish I would have had someone like me for me when I was growing up. You know, I, I think, you know, even though you have the benefit of going to quote unquote elite schools, if you don't really have someone that's kind of like in your corner saying, hey, I got you, let me guide you in the probably I'll say the right direction, it's very easy to waste time or be inefficient in terms of how you leverage your, your resources. So I feel that for the young people that I've had a chance to interact with, I've, I think in many ways, been able to fast track them to success. You know, a lot of the young people I work with, they're already smart, but I think that being smart alone, we all know is not, is not a, um, sufficient to get the job. You can be smart all day, but if you don't know the right people, no one cares. So what I've tried to do through the things I've done over long, you know, my career is really try to make make that bridge with talented, visible minority candidates and connecting them to opportunities, which I feel that maybe through the benefit of going to, you know, you say elite schools, people kind of listen to what I have to say. Um, so I say, 
leverage what you got to get what you want. And what I want to see is, are more talented, visible minorities getting the competitive jobs that they, that they are qualified to have. Absolutely. I like that too, because one of my favorite books, I don't know if you've read is um, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell and talks a lot about just amazing people who were in the, the best environment for them to get to where they are at right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So definitely you, you definitely fall in line with that because you can, you can have all the skill sets in the world, but if your environment isn't honing that skill set, you really can excel to great heights. So I agree with you there full hold for sure. No, thank you, sir. So what made you want to come to, to Canada? How was that experience like for you? Like, Oh, that was like, simple, man. My, <laughs> my wife is Canadian. Okay. And she, was, and she mentioned Trump's going to become president, so we got to go. <laughs> was that really the story? Was that really nah, the story? No, <laughs> no, nah, man. No, nah, that was the story. The real story is my wife, my wife is Canadian. Um, and at the time that we were making the decision on getting married, she was in a position where she was currently, she was in the process of getting her MBA at the Schulich School of Business at York University. Um, I completed all my qualifications for being licensed in North Carolina as a lawyer. So I was a lot more flexible. So I said, you know what, as opposed to you leaving your MBA, which wouldn't have made any sense, you know, I could come up. Um, and I said, you know, let's do it. And, you know, I shortly thereafter enrolled in the master's of law program at U of T. And where did you, did you meet her in the States or? No, we met online, man. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We met online, man. Computer love. For real. All right. All right. <laughs> so, Fast forwarding now, um, after school, what would you say was your first, your first major commitment to entrepreneurship? I will say my first major commitment, I actually confirmed it when I was a senior at Princeton. Um, we have a really unique, um, I'll say culture at Princeton. We have a ton of fellowship programs. Like we have a fellowship program, Princeton in Africa. We can go to Africa and do really good work. Wow. Princeton in Latin America, go to Latin America. Um, we, have a, we have a very strong culture in terms of applying to various prestigious scholarships like the Rhodes, the Truman, um, the Soros. Um, one that was Princeton specific was the class of 1956 fellowship, which was actually something I had eyeballed as a freshman. And I said, this fellowship looks amazing. It essentially allows you to create your own job and Princeton alumni fund you. So when I was a senior, I made a proposal to go back to my hometown and to work with students in high school, middle school and, and elementary school to help prepare them for college and give them exposure to various careers. It, one thing you'll see is that there's a pattern in terms of things that I do. And um, I was really fortunate to get this fellowship. I was the first time someone quote unquote that was black to receive this um, in the history of the fellowship. Um, and I feel that the, getting that fellowship was a testament of I think, what's my secret skill? You know, I feel like I'm, I'm a good networker, relationship development person. Absolutely. I knew way in advance that I wanted this fellowship. So I reached out to all the previous winners in advance and talked to them about advice. You know, Jeez. they gave me good, they gave me good feedback on how to revise my application, make it stronger. And I feel like that's what I will do. I think a lot of people, and I'll be very honest, I think a lot of people are quote unquote smarter than me. Probably a lot of people are smarter than me then I, I feel like I just work harder than most people. You know, that's just my secret, my secret sauce. I'll just outwork you. Hmm. Jeez, powerful stuff. So right now your business that you're heavily working on is with Icon Talent Partners. How's that yes, experience for you been for you this far? You know, thus far it's been, it's been really eye-opening. Um, I, I think the fact that we're doing with Icon Icon is net new to the Canadian environment. And what I mean by that is in the United States, the, the, the not-for-profit sector and cultivating top diverse talent has been you know, around since the 1960s. So it's a very mature market. But in Canada, that's not the case. If you're smart and you're black or you're indigenous or you're Hispanic or you're South Asian or you're you know, you know, part of the BIPOC community, there's no one helping you. You know, so you're at, if you're at U of T or you're really smart and you're at Sheridan or you're at Humber, it's just kind of like an, an assumption, you'll be okay. Um, what I've learned is that you won't be okay because I think talent without exposure and grooming 
tends to fail. Or if not fail, you're not going to reach the heights that you should. So before moving to Canada, my wife mentioned to me, hey, Derek, there's all these great programs in the U.S. Why don't you do something like that here in Canada? At the time, you know, I felt that I wanted to focus on other endeavors, other projects. And I actually knew that doing this type of work that's net new is going to be incredibly hard because you're essentially teaching an, like the corporate sector in Canada a whole new language and not just, you know, the corporation that will hopefully fund you, but you're teaching schools, you're teaching students, you're teaching parents. Like, what does this mean? So in many cases, when I explain this to somebody, they're like, when they get it, they're like, that sounds amazing. Why hasn't someone done it yet? Well, like, because it's hard to create something net new. Um, so I, you know, with kind of how things are going thus far, it's been very eye-opening that I see people's eyes open up during a call and they're like, I get it now. I want to see how I can support. Um, I think that to me has been really gratifying to see the, you know, people kind of getting it and what we're trying to do here. And it's, it's almost, um, it's, it's perfect timing for you as well, because, you know, you're already, you're already aware to the fact, I'm sure you're already aware to the fact that the, the window for tech is, is wide open, like in the tech space. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, com a lot of tech companies, what I, what I'm, I'm in tech myself, I'm in health tech. And what I realized that a lot of, there's not enough companies out there that aren't taking the, the, the perspective of diversity and including um, people of different races into the development of their projects, right? Mm -hmm. So me being black and having input into development of the technology only helps refine the tech and make the company more money, right? So um, I think it's perfect timing. We're in the pan middle of a pandemic right now and the, the speed at which tech has, is growing has fast forwarded, right? Yeah. So companies like, your, like yourself, like Icon Talent Partners are gonna be you know, amazing amazing for for times like this for sure no I, I totally agree you know one thing I, I feel that's you know imperative is you know I think with organizations getting it I think is one thing but one one nugget that I think is is harder to crack is for people to quote unquote put their money where their mouth is hmm. so I think people like to talk you know to their your their till the end of the day is about you know I get it I support it you know I think there's too many organizations that are that are posting things online about, I stand with, you know, the black community. But I, then you ask them like, so have you invested in organizations that are doing real work in the black community? Then that's, I think when the conversation gets quiet, you know, so I kind of feel that, you know, blog posts or LinkedIn posts and Twitter posts without real concerted action, I think is, is hollow. Um, I'm also mindful what I see in terms of a lot of corporate Canada. I call it groupthink, which is, hey, we've provided, you know, support to quote unquote organizations in the past. So that's the only organization we'll continue to support going forward. And I kind of think that's a little short sighted because, you know, new organizations, new ideas, you should, you know, provide support to other organizations as well. So I think that sometimes organizations have to think more broadly than saying we're going to support these one black org and then we're done um i think that they should have a more nuanced approach to be like hey there's more than one black organization or as you know in icon we support all bipoc candidates with a particular emphasis on black indigenous and hispanic is to you know broaden their horizons you know invest in things that are new um but i think that's a, a longer conversation perhaps for another day for sure i 100 percent agree with you you nailed it on that point M money talks at the end of the day Money, money definitely talks and an organization will truly care if they're putting money up for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Put your money where your mouth is. So Derek, what was the motivation behind starting this company? What, what keeps you going when you're going through those extremely rough days, um, which I'm sure you go through, what keeps you grounded? What keeps you motivated? Um, I, I think the biggest thing is is seeing their results you know like i have this really sharp sets of students in the program and when they tell me like one gentleman he got an opportunity to work at a private debt company um this year and doing a marketing internship 
And he comes and he tells me this was an amazing experience. I got to learn a lot, got to make some really great connections. To me, that one experience alone lets me know it's worth it. You know, if we can move the dial on one person, it lets me know it's worth it. Um, I think two is I'm mindful that if, let's say for whatever reason, if ICON ceased to exist, I know the market in terms of the talent development in Canada would be hurt. Um, I think the reason I say that is that it, I would feel differently if I felt that they were peer not-for-profits doing the exact same thing I'm doing. Then I'd be like, well, it doesn't matter because someone's already doing it. The problem is there is no one doing it. There's no one that has a comprehensive, systematic approach of grooming top talent. That, no, that does not exist in Canada until ICON was, was established. So I feel that it's really important to stick to my guns and keep pushing it forward because I know what the organizations that we're modeling ourselves after in the United States, what they have done is that one of these organizations, if you go to Harvard Business School, if you go to Stanford Business School, if you go to Wharton Business School, almost half of the black, brown, and indigenous candidates are coming from that one not-for-profit alone, hands down, oh, wow. you know? So when you look in Canada, there's no one doing that. There's no one grooming top BIPOC talent for what I call greatness or for quote unquote competitive schools. So if ICON doesn't exist, no one's doing that work. You know, no one's doing that work at all. Um, so I feel that it's, it's, it's imperative for ICON to stick to its guns and keep moving forward and trudging along, you know, and I'm mindful that it takes courage to be the first to do anything. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. I've been in conversations with various universities throughout Canada over the past, since the existence of ICON about a year ago. I taught the one university for over a year, one whole year about ICON and we should work together, we should partner, you know, everything. I talked to another university for about, actually, actually it wasn't me, it was one of my teammates, for about maybe two months. And you know what they said? We get it. We get it. It makes sense. And they were our first official partner. That university was Queen's University Smith School of Business. It's the first time in their history they've ever partnered with a not-for-profit like ICON, ever. Hmm. And I feel that we need more organizations, more universities, more corporations to have courage. You know, you don't have to feel that just since it hasn't been done, that I can't be the first, you know? So with that university saying yes, it, I call it de-risk this type of relationship for the next university. They could point at Queens and say, well, they did it. We should do it too. Hmm. But it takes courage to be the first. And I think that when it comes to ICON and getting significant funding, when I say significant funding is like 100,000 plus, that takes courage to be like, I wanna be the first to cut that big check, you know? At ICON, we're not doing what I call, which is very unfortunate, I think, for a lot of BIPOC not-for-profits. We do not want to be another, oh, I have a full-time job, but this is my side of my desk thing. You know, what I do with, in terms of ICON, this is not a hobby. This is not something fun that I do on the side for, for giggles. This is a real job. This is real work. You know, to do real work takes real money. If you're not willing to, do, to contribute real money, then you need to look at yourself in the mirror and be like, why not? There are lots of not-for-profits, I feel, they get oodles of money. And I'm not sure if their KPIs or key performance indicators result in tangible benefits, you know? Icon's not here for show. If you want to have a large event, a large conference, have tons of great speakers, but no, no infrastructure, no real training, then don't come to Icon. Icon does real work. You know, and I think to me, teaching or not um, corporations that I don't want to be a part of your virtue signaling. I don't want to be a part of your campaign. I don't want to be a part of your pretty picture that you can do a photo op. I'm not about that. If you want that, there's lots of not-for-profits that are happy to and have received lots of your money. But if you want to say, I want to significantly change corporate Canada to look different 10 years from now, then give me a call. Hmm. But I think the problem is there's too many not-for-profits that are like money, 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 money. But I ask you, have black people or diverse people receive jobs based on what you're doing? Have they received jobs? You know, 
have they received support through those jobs to be competitive, you know? And I think to me, that's the thing that kind of get me revved up, you know, because I know the work we're doing is important. I know that if we, if we get the funding we need, we could change corporate Canada, you know? We can make venture capital diverse. Venture capital is not diverse in Canada. It's not diverse in the US, but I think that I get tired of the cop-outs of people saying, you know what, well, we just, just can't do it. I'm like, yes, you can. Because you know one thing I'm, I'm mindful about Canada is that when they wanted to make things diverse for women, it got diverse because you put money behind it. You were intentional, you cared. When it comes to visible minorities, it's like, you know, I just don't get it. It's confusing. I'm like, no, it's not. If you want to make things happen, you can. But I think that people like to cop out. They like it to be easy, you know? And I think I don't like things to be easy on people. You know, I call it for what it is, you know? I think that people are lazy. They're lazy intellectually. They don't want to put their money where their mouth is. Jeez. Dropping gems. Derek, I love it. I love it. Makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. So one thing I'd like to ask you, Derek, is how do you manage a company and remain a father and the husband all at the same time? Like, how do you, how do you manage all of that at once? I think that all oh, the answer is easy. You marry Superwoman and then you're good. <laughs> no, seriously, you marry Superwoman. My wife is amazing. I think that, you know, when I married my wife, I feel like one thing I think for hopefully for all people, especially for all men, marry up. But I did, yeah, marry up. Marry someone smarter than you. It makes your life better because they make you look good. You know, my <laughs> wife is the, my wife is probably the hardest worker I know, hands down. Hardest worker, um, great, amazing mother, you know, just great teammate for her colleagues at her job at TD. Um, and I feel like she makes my life a lot easier, you know, and I think she gives me the, the latitude to be able to invest in what I'm passionate about, you know, because she knows that, you know, she knows where my heart is. She knows I, I get up and I love this stuff. She probably hears a lot of, about it way more than she would like to. But at the end of the day, I feel that Icon's going to change lives. It already has, you know, like I just seeing these young people feel like there's someone in my corner fighting for me, you know, that makes a difference in just how you perceive yourself. You're like, someone cares. Hmm. Someone's fighting. Because I think, unfortunately, when it comes to top visible minority talent, no one's fighting for you. You know, and at the end of the day, I feel like even though a lot of universities are well-intentioned, they just don't have the bandwidth. Think about it. You have thousands of students. Your career services departments tend to have maybe 10, 20 people, maybe. There's hard to get that hands-on support. You just don't have the bandwidth or you don't have the expertise. I don't know too many um, universities that have someone on staff that used to work in venture capital or management consulting or investment banking or any competitive sector that says like, you know what, I'm gonna stop making this money to go work in career services departments, you know? Now, if people did, I think that'd be amazing, but that's rare. What yeah. we do with ICON is we provide direct access and mentorship in those sectors. Shockingly, that tends to be successful, <laughs> you know? Mm. But I think that in the day, for every school, and there's many of them, that tells me, I don't get it, why do I want to partner? Um, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, so it doesn't make sense to partner with an organization that will essentially help you to help your own students for free. Like we don't charge schools anything for this. You know, we pretty much say, I want to help you do your job better. Does that sound good to you? And some people, they seem very confused. They're like, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, I, don't, I, I feel like at the same time, I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I can't make it any clear. I can't make it any clearer, you know? Either you want to help or you don't. And why do you think some of these organizations like question it? Because it, it's, it's a no-brainer. I think, I think the issue is I feel that perhaps some of these organizations that have yet to, I don't say, I say feel alignment is perhaps they might feel in some odd way competitive, which I don't get. You know, I think at the end of the day, we just help to amplify what they're already doing. We're just helping to amplify. Like, we're not only helping all the students. We're actually saying specifically, we want you to share with us or at least provide notification that we exist to your top students that tend to be from the BIPOC community. That's it. Nothing else. That's it. Because once you, we have those students identified, we can essentially take it from there. 
If you identify the talent, we can take them, we can groom them, we can prepare them and help them to land jobs. I mean, right now, Kobe, we're literally, as of today, sitting on 10 paying summer jobs for high school students. 10 jobs, summer 2021, they're already done. Five jobs in consulting, five jobs in insurance. These are the type of jobs that if you do well, you know what happens? You get a job every summer, every single summer from high school all the way through university. And if you do a good job throughout the whole time, you get a full-time job after college, you know? We're just sitting on that, you know? And I feel that, you know, that to me is what we've done in one year. But you know how that happens? You need funding, you need money. You can't do this, like, I'll tell you, if I, if, I, if I couldn't get the funding it needs in the next six months to a year, it'll still exist, but things are gonna have to change, you know? But I feel that, you know, corporate Canada will hopefully say, you know what, we wanna support this guy, you know? You could divert the funding that you're giving to maybe the virtual, virtue signaling not-for-profits out there and be like, we wanna give to some real stuff. Do that. Give me a fraction of what you give to these other not-for-profits and I'll show you what we can do. Because you'll outwork them. Yeah, I'll outwork them. I feel that, to be honest with you, the only reason I can't even exist to, today is because we have a much better model and we fight hard, you know? I don't have a budget, you know? I don't have big banks blasting my not-for-profit all over the planet. I don't have that. You know what I have to do? I just have to prove re re results. Let's have a better product. Because I feel like, unfortunately, I feel sometimes I'm not always the greatest salesman. I'm not shiny. I don't, you know, I'm not puff daddy. I'm not running around in shiny suits. You know, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm coming out with results. And I say that if you want results, you know, results take time, you know? Jeez. Well, Derek, I don't know if you can talk to us about it, but can you talk to us about some of the successes recently that, that Icon Talent Partners has, 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 has seen? I think some of the recent successes, and I think, you know, this is one thing I, I feel is really important that we actually had a, a young gentleman that I actually know fairly well um, from Princeton University. And he's actually my mentee, which actually makes me really happy. And he said, you know what? I really want to work at McKinsey Consulting, you know, which as you probably know, the, 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 the leading con management consulting firm in the world, they're number one. And he says, I need help. I was fortunate enough to be able to tap one of the young ladies in Icon to be his mentor because she had an offer to McKinsey in the summer. So she groomed him. She prepped him. She got him ready. And you know what? He got the job, you know, got the job at McKinsey Consulting, crushing it. And you know what? He just informed me he got a full-time job to McKinsey. What people don't understand about companies like McKinsey is that at a company like McKinsey, it's not just a job. When you get a job at McKinsey, your life, therefore, has forever changed. No matter what you do, you can always say, I'm ex McKinsey. What I will share with you, Kobe, is some of the intricacies about being a placement McKinsey. When you get into a place like McKinsey, first of all, you're probably starting your, your career as a young professional, starting off six figures. You're 22, you're making six figures. Wow. Two, when you decide, hey, I want to get an MBA. Guess what McKinsey does for you? They pay for it. They pay for it. So if you get into Harvard, they pay for it. You know, you get into Queen's School of Business, you, know, you get into Smith School of Business, they pay for it. And they pretty much guarantee you a job to come back to. So once you get into McKinsey, you can almost say, I have six years plotted out. Two years as an analyst, go get my MBA, come back for two more years, kind of pay off my debts by working there. You have six years set for the rest of your life. Now, after you're done working at McKinsey for then, then it opens up a whole wide world of other jobs. Then you're competitive for roles in investment banking, venture capital, private equity, starting your own company. Because you know what? When you go to a place like McKinsey, you learn so much so fast, but you get a lot of credibility. After you've done your stint, you're like 28 years old, 27, 28. You know what you can tell people at that point? I'm hella smart. Give me a million dollars to start my company. And you know what people do? They do it. Because hmm. you went to McKinsey and you're smart and you've proven it. You know, so I feel that people don't understand that because they're not in the know. They don't know what it means to be in a place like that. They don't get it. But these young people, they get it. They know what it means. 
what I want to do is I want to make it so that this gentleman who's bl a black male, I want this to go from this is an exceptional story that's outside the norm to this being the norm. I want to see an army of black men and black women, indigenous men, indigenous women, Hispanic men and Hispanic women, just pipelining to McKinsey. But you know what? You can't do that. If you don't have any funding. Hmm. You can't do the training. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes years to really create that pipeline. And that's what we want to do with, with ICON. We want to create that pipeline. Wow. And even that alone, you know, just on that topic of the, the, the mentee getting into McKenzie Consulting, that transfers over the, the wealth gap as well, right? Because once they're in a position, once they're in a position where they're making that enough money, they can purchase their own house. And once the house appreciates, you start building generational wealth. So it really does transfer and change the whole gamut. So I, I really, I respect that a lot for sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, personally, to be honest with you, there's a method to the madness. You know, and I feel like there's a part of me that I think I would say is selfish in the way that you know, personally being a black male, being a black American male in Canada, is like, I want to see people win here. I want to see all BIPOC people win, but I especially want to see black people win. You know, I don't see a lot of winning on a systematic level in Canada. I see what I call pockets, you know? You have pockets of people doing well. I'm like, hey, black people in Oakville, how are you doing? It's a few of you, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, but you don't see systematic like institutions that say we are changing things because once you've already gotten into a TD or an RBC or whatever, you're kind of winning. And that's what we want to do with icon. We want to create a true pipeline of top BIPOC talent. You know, I want to see an army of black people of venture capital, you know, like I feel like there's a, a slogan we like to use in the Ivy league. It's lonely at the top. So when you have um, good brothers like Isaac from dream makers, He's the only black person I know in venture capital in the entire country. It must be lonely to be Isaac because only yeah. you, you know? And I think that as much as I'm, I'm proud of this brother and I think it's excellent, he shouldn't be the only one. To me, that makes no sense. That to me is a travesty because there's no pipeline. There's no black people in mass being groomed to be an Isaac. There's no pipeline. I see black people, it's like a unicorn in venture capital. I'm like, oh my God, like, how'd you get here? You know, like, it's a miracle. But it shouldn't be that way. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be um, happy with having, you know, low numbers. So one of my goals for ICON is to have a pipeline of venture capital ready black talent, you know? So we're actually working with venture capital firms with the goal of having high school VC internships. Do you know how that will change the, change the game? Wow. Yeah, five a year, 10 a year, 20 a year. You know, then they, they start feeding into venture capital firms or firms that will groom them to be venture capital ready. Because this is, there's a method to the madness, Kobe. Either you're going to venture capital straight or you're probably going to investment banking, consulting, what I call traditional feeder programs. Then you go to venture capital. But if you're not groomed to be able to do that, then you're not going to get in. Hmm. But you have to have the pipeline. You have to do the hard work. And to do that, you need funding. Funding, for sure. I like sure. to keep going back to funding because funding is necessary. I feel like people have cute words like, yeah, you know, it's going it's to do it. Osmosis. No, man, you need money. <laughs> You need funding. You can't do any stuff without funding. Money definitely talks. Money definitely talks. So Derek, what's next for you and Icon Talent Partners? I think next for, for, for me is very aligned with Icon. You know, I think that, you know, with the proper funding, um, I can see Icon obviously continue to grow and in Canada, the likelihood of system out the United States as well. We already have some footprint in the United States, in particular Princeton University. You know, but my vision, and this is like my big picture vision, Kobe, is I feel like I'll say, why don't we why can't we have Icon Ghana? Hmm. 
Why can't we have Icon Nigeria? Why can't we have Icon UK? I feel like there's BIPOC folks, in particular Black folks, everywhere that are marginalized and not given a fair shake when it comes to competitive careers. And I feel that why not us? Why not? That's amazing. Yeah, that's, right. the, that's, the, that's the big dream. But I think, once again, you got to have funding. <laughs> <laughs> the F word. <laughs> yeah, the, the new F word, funding. All right. Welcome to the Purpose Round, where we ask the right questions that really bring out the purpose behind our entrepreneurs and their journey. So, Derek, what is your purpose? I think my, actually, I know my purpose is to help the next generation to achieve, to achieve the dreams that our, that our ancestors had for us. And I think our ancestors had a dream for us to be in every sector of society, you know, and not just being in a sector, but being leaders. You know, my, my dream is to, you know, within my lifetime, I go to a TD bank, I go to an RBC, and it becomes commonplace to see a CEO that's BIPOC and, and specifically black. To me, that would, that would say something. If, if one of the big banks had a black CEO, I would pass out. I'd be like, OMG, the game has changed. But I think that to do that, you need to have a pipeline of black senior executives. And shockingly, that's the area where all the banks have failed. Epi like, you know, like epically failed. Got you. What is your morning routine like? My morning routine is pretty basic. You know, I get up, you know, I give my son a shower, um, get them all wake up and all that jazz. I go downstairs, you know, I put the, the hot water on. My wife would tend to come down, feed my son, you know, get him dressed. I drive him off to daycare. And then I say, it's, then it's game time. You know, I get home. You know, I start doing my outreach um, to various corporate organizations that we're hoping to partner with, various universities. I reach out to my fellows, let them know about different opportunities. And in many ways, you know, lately we've had a lot of bandwidth with our symposium that's coming up. Uh, that's taking a lot of air, air out of the room. Um, but those are kind of the main things that we do. Um, and then right now is we're in interview season. So we're interviewing really sharp BIPOC candidates for ICON. Um, because we're kicking off this year, like this, this cycle in Octo early October. Um, so if folks are, have interest and you're in, you know, high school, um, university or young professionals or MBAs, you should apply at www.icontalent.org. You should apply. All right. And if you could have a conversation with one person living or dead, who would it be and why? You know what? I feel like it's, you know, the person I would, I would chat with, and he's someone I, I hold in very high esteem. And there's actually a book. I'm not sure if you've read it yet. Um, the book is um, Why Do White Guys Have All the Fun? I haven't read Reginald that book Lewis. yet. Yeah, I you heard to check it out. Yeah. yeah. And one of my, my, one of my best friends from undergrad, um, at C, he's a fellow Princetonian, Randolph Wiggins, you know, re referenced this book when I was an undergrad at Princeton. He says, Derek, you need to read this book. And I read the book and I was like, this was a very life, life impacting book. And it pretty much shared a story about this young brother that I think is the first person and only person in history to get acceptance to Harvard Law School without taking the LSAT. He convinced them that I'm the guy, you know, he crushed it in undergrad. He went to a historically black college, went to Harvard Law School, crushed it, started his own company, became, I think, almost his company maybe was worth maybe a billion dollars. This is back in the 80s or something crazy like wow. that. You know, unfortunately, this gentleman had an aneurysm and passed away early, you know, young. But he proved what can happen when talent meets access. The problem, I think, with the Black community, and I think especially here in Canada, because I feel like Canada is, is ripe for disruption, is... Canada likes to look at itself as better than the U.S. in a lot of different ways. And to be honest with you, with Trump as president, uh, there, are, there are a lot of ways that Canada is much better. But I think that when it comes to the corporate sector, Canada is several generations behind the U.S. Hmm. 
In the U.S., we're light years ahead. You'll have the, the, one of the major institutions, financial institutions in the world, American Express, had a black CEO for a very long time. You know, you know Mr. Chenault. But in Canada, I don't think there's ever been a black CEO of a major company. I don't think there's been an indigenous president. I don't think there's been a Hispanic president. You know, Canada's light years behind, and I think it's easy to hide behind the facade of that, you know, we're not overtly racist. Okay. Like, <laughs> you're not overtly racist. You get the uh, not overtly racist, um, you know, you know, like, you know, get out of jail free card. I feel like you need to convert your efforts and be hardcore about, I want to see real change. If any of the major banks wanted to have real change and it was a priority, they could do it right now. They could do it right now, hmm. you know? But I think that you need to have the will to do it. You have the will. And I think that the will is very hard because it's hard to change how things have always been. It's hard. What's the best advice you've ever received? I think the best advice I think I've ever seen is that a lot of times people say, I, I really hope someone will make this change. I really hope someone will do this. I really hope X, Y, Z. I say, you know what? You know, screw that. Be the change you want to see. You know, be the change you want to see. You know, like I think, Kobe, you're doing a great thing with your podcast. You want to put positivity and getting people out there that are really doing things. Like for me, when it comes to the things I do is like, I sat here for like four years since moving to Canada and I was looking around for someone to do what I felt needed to be done. And I was looking, I was looking, I was hoping, I was praying. Cause it's a lot easier to support someone if they're already doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. But I said, you know what? Like, I know it be the change you want to see. You know, if I want to see the black community and the BIPOC community change in terms of these competitive sectors that we focus on in ICON, if I want to see it change, you better step up and do it. Do it yourself. Do it. And hopefully people believe your vision, they will follow you. You know, and more important than this, follow you, they will become your teammates. You know, everyone that's associated with ICON, they're my teammates. You know, they make me better. You know, I got a gentleman um, in the program that I feel that if someone, Lord forbid, was ever to happen to me, I would say on my, on my bed, I'll be like, yo, this guy, he's the next one up. Hmm. You know, this young brother's name is Jordan. He works at CIBC. He doesn't know it yet, but like, he's that guy. He is. He's that guy. He's a hard worker, you know? And he doesn't do it for the show. He just does it, you know? I need something to get done. I'm like, hey, does anybody want to do it in a group chat? He'll raise his hand. I'll do it. You know? Hmm not aggressive, not, you know, not trying to be that guy, but he gets it done. I like people like that. They get stuff done. Not a lot of fanfare, just get it done. You know, and I think that's my approach. Just get it done. Tell us something that you think is true about business that most people don't agree with you on. Everything's a business decision. Hmm. Everything's a business decision. You know, the same way that, you know, every corporate corporate organization throughout the world, Canada included, has seen the light on Black Lives Matter, it's a business decision. So as much as people want to pat themselves on the back about we have a new black initiative or what I think takes the cake, we have a diversity and inclusion role that just opened up. Would you, would you like to apply? I was like, you knew that these were problems before George Floyd was murdered. You knew this was a problem, but it became imperative from a business decision to do it now. Mm. Because if you're that if you're the loan companies that are not doing it, you're an outlier. But it's a business decision, you know, and I'm mindful, to be honest with you, I'm very assertive and aggressive with getting corporations on board now because this business decision about Black Lives Matter, supporting Black groups, blah, 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 it could be flavor of the month. It may not look like this next year. All this money being thrown around may not be here next year. It may be back to the good old days of, I think the best example, one, one company said, I had a meeting with them a few months ago. And I was like, hey, uh, we really like your support. And they're like, are you a charitable organization? That is code for corporations of, we're not going to give you any money because we can't write it off. 
That is code for that. Because if you're a multi-million company, million-dollar company or multi-billion-dollar company, and you ask me, do you have charitable status? That's the only way we, we help. That means you just don't want to help because you clearly have the money. You just don't want to help. I also rather you tell me first, beginning of the meeting, we are not going to give you money. We will do in-kind, but we're not going to give you money. Just cut the crap, you know? But I think a lot of times it's people want to cop out, you know, and I don't think, I think you, have to, you know, you have to call things out, man. Either you want to help or you don't. If you don't want to help, keep it moving. Jeez. Is there any last piece of value you can leave with our listeners? I think the last piece of advice is I think people like authenticity, you know, and I feel like there's a brother that I have had the pleasure of being since moving to Canada, um, he's an executive at um, National Bank. His name's Ray Williams. Ray Williams, in many ways, is like who I, who I would like to be when I'm at his more senior age. He's a phenomenal brother, you know? I think love him or hate him, he is who he is. And I respect that, you know? And I feel that since getting to know him, I want to glean that part of him of just being confident in your own skin to be who you are, you know? And I think similar to Ray Williams, I feel like either you like me or you don't, you know, I feel like for people like yourself, Kobe, like, I feel like you're one of my boys, like you cool, like we can kick it, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not like that with everybody. I'm not everybody's best buddy. And that's okay. And I think when I was younger, it was easier for me to feel bad about that. You know, everybody's not my friend. Everybody's not my pal. Everybody's not my best buddy. But I think at the end of the day, you can't be everybody's best friend. I think similar to Icon as an organization, Icon's not for everybody. I think similar for myself, I'm not for everybody. Everybody may not like me. I may not like you, and that's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, no one can say that when it comes to the things I hold dear, but in terms of working with young people, making things better, they can't say that, oh, you're not sincere, you don't really believe that. Because I've been riding in this road for a long time. And I'll stack my resume in terms of what I've done for other people against anybody. And say like, hey, I put in the work just like you. And how can the Purposeful Story family stay connected with you? Um, I think there's a variety of ways. You can, you can follow our group on, um, on, Ic- on um, LinkedIn, Icon Talent Partners. Um, you can send an email to me directly at team at icontalent.org. And if you're a corporation out there and you want to put your money to work, to do real work, send me an email team at icontalent.org team at icontalent.org yes sir got you all right derek appreciate you coming on the show today all right thank you sir and thank you purposeful story family for listening to the purposeful story podcast and remember live every day with purpose so all your actions are clear talk soon This episode was edited by Clayton Bob of Precise AV Solutions, and the beats were created by DJ Nana. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. All it does is help drive more listeners to the value we're bringing to your eardrums. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.